The interchange is supported by Five Works, a turnkey customer engagement platform. Utilities, if you're looking to go beyond the meter to engage your customers on a deeper level and drive them toward desired outcomes, you're looking for Five Works. Five Works personalizes digital communications and drives customer behavior at scale by using behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning technology to help you market to a customer of one. That's how you deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. To see how Five Works can help your program succeed, visit fiveworks.com/theinterchange. That's Five Works with an X. fiveworks.com/theinterchange, or follow the link on the podcast page. This is The Interchange, conversations about the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston with Shale Khan out in Berkeley. Shale, hello. Hey, Stephen. Grid nerds have spent the last few months whipped into a frenzy over Rick Perry's poorly written plan to prop up coal plants in the name of grid resiliency. And by the way, that judgment on the quality of the plan, that's not my opinion. Federal energy regulators said as much when they rejected it last week. Perry's team couldn't come up with the basic legal argument needed for FERC to consider the proposal. So here we are with this chapter of the saga closed. The proposed rule was stopped by FERC in what should have been an unsurprising decision, but these days we never really know what to expect out of Washington institutions. The door is not fully closed, however. Federal energy regulators say they want to revisit the idea of grid resiliency, and they're asking regional grid operators to report back on their actual resiliency needs. So it's worth now to step back and ask ourselves the same question. What does the grid actually need? In an age when renewables, and already in some cases batteries, are the lowest cost resources, how should we really be planning? That's our topic for today. We are joined by two grid experts who've been asking this question for years, Sonia Agarwal and Robbie Orvis of the analysis firm Energy Innovation. Sonia Agarwal is the vice president of Energy Innovation. She heads up the firm's work on power sector transformation and energy policy. And she also launched America's Power Plan, a collection of insights about rapid change underway in the electric sector. Sonia, welcome. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's great to be here. Robbie Orvis is the Policy Design Projects Manager at Energy Innovation, where he works on power sector transformation issues. He's a contributor to America's Power Plan as well. Robbie, welcome. Morning, Stephen. Nice to be here. Shale, let's swing on over to you first to kick off the show. Where do things stand after Rick Perry's rejection at FERC? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, we can sort of, so as you said, the FERC rejected the NOPER, but then is opening a new docket into resilience. So we, we can have a, another conversation about resilience on the grid and what that means, especially in light of the hurricane season that we had last year that was so um, dramatic and problematic on the grid. But setting aside that new ruling or that new docket rather, you know, I think this takes us back to just before that NOPER was put out in the first place, which is um, we have a grid that is changing. In particular, we are adding an increasing amount of intermittent renewables to that grid. Um, meanwhile, we have lots of early retirements of coal plants, early retirements of nuclear plants. Natural gas remains pretty cheap. Um, and the grid is evolving pretty quickly. And so there's lots of questions still to be asked about whether 
the market is currently set up well to adapt to all those changes or whether there are other things that need to happen. And in the meantime, you know, as these changes are occurring, we get little indications of what might be to come when we see shocks to the system, either driven by uh, climate events or by, you know, shutdowns of generators or rapid introductions of other things. So, you know, what we're sort of on the lookout for as we're monitoring this are little um, vignettes that we can use to try to tell a broader story about what's coming next and to try to find any places where it's not going to be a smooth transition. Well, let's try to weave some of these vignettes together. So, Sonia, America's Power Plan was launched back in 2012. You formed this consortium of experts who wrote analytical articles and reports on the evolution of the electric grid. We've hosted a lot of them on Green Tech Media. Highly recommend to listeners who don't know America's Power Plan. You can just uh, find them at americaspowerplan.com or find the articles that they've written on our website. So, when this began... In 2012, it was this period of awakening. We knew rapid change was coming, but it was still a future scenario. Now, 2017 and 2018, this is a period of reckoning. We've gone from awakening to reckoning. It is change or be changed. Think about the last five years, Sonia. How have things played out compared to what experts were predicting in 2012? Sure, Stephen. So that, I think that's a great question. And I was having some fun actually um, thinking back over the last five years um, as we were getting ready for this podcast, because it really is just as you say. Um, I think when we got together um, in 2012, there was a lot of discussion about the utility death spiral and what's going to happen with stagnating load and the introduction of a lot of new variable resources onto the grid. What does that mean for grid operations and the institutions that have run the grid for the last hundred years? What needs to change about them? Um, and I give a lot of credit to the folks who were involved um, in the project from the very beginning in anticipating a lot of the changes that um, did end up playing out. And uh, many of the solutions that they uh, proposed um, during that process really have become much more widespread over the last five years. The changing costs of clean energy technologies compared to um, other technologies that have been on the grid for a long time have been stark. And I think that has happened even faster than almost anyone could have predicted. Um, the fact that now we have clean energy resources coming in at or below the continuing operating cost of uh, coal plants in many parts of the country is just a wild wild point to be at. Um, and it does, I think, require quite a lot of rethinking of the policies that that drive our grid. I think that's right. So let's dig into it a little bit. And um, to me, we have a, a, a really interesting, very recent example where we can look at what actually happened on a grid when there was a shock to the system uh, and a changing mix of resources, which is in New England. So uh, those of you in, in New England need no explanation here, but it's been kind of a crazy winter there. And in particular, right around the, the end of the year, beginning of January this year, we had this bomb cyclone that was followed up by this incredible cold snap. And that caused what looked like it might be some challenges on the grid. You know, there were there were concerns the last time around in the polar vortex, which was a few years ago. And in fact, Secretary Perry even referenced the polar vortex once or twice when he was talking about his justification for 
the NOPER that was rejected. So this was another example of a extreme cold snap in New England. And then there's some additional factors that we could talk about that that made it somewhat unique. So Robbie, I was watching you watch what was happening in New England during uh, on Twitter while the cold snap was occurring and looking at what the mix was on the grid in ISO New England. Can you give us just like the broad picture of basically what happened in the, the you know end of December, beginning of January in the Northeast? Yeah, basically, when when uh, you get really cold weather, especially in New England, the price of gas increases uh, quite a bit. Uh, it was it was trending up over around thirty dollars at least or higher. Um, and when that happens, a lot of there's a lot of oil plants uh, in New England, and there's a lot of dual gas and oil plants, and so you tend to see a switch from gas to oil that you don't typically see throughout the year. Um, and that isn't uh, a symptom of there not being enough capacity. It's actually a way for the generators to hedge the risk on prices because during the times when it's really cold and gas prices increase, uh, oil actually becomes cheaper to use for power. So we saw a lot of uh, oil units coming online. Um, and I think what you're alluding to is the fact that uh, there was actually a major nuclear power plant, the Pilgrim Power Station, that actually tripped offline uh, during the bomb cyclone. Um, and the reason for that was due to a transmission line failure. So those plants need power from the grid to operate. And one of the transmission lines during the storm uh, became inoperable and they had to shut the plant down. That kind of shows the way in which nuclear power can can be affected by weather events and may or may not be resilient. Um, but it also shows, you know, looking at what happened after that plant came offline, we can see how the grid responded. Right. And I want to talk about that. But before we do, I guess I'll just make two points on that, that I think are interesting threads. The first one, we don't need to relitigate the sort of faulty argument that led to the DOE NOPER over and over, because we've talked about it a lot before. But this was a perfect example of, you know, the nuclear plant would have qualified for that. It has 90 days of fuel supply on hand. But yet, that's not actually the challenge in these weather events. The challenge as you said, what had to do with grid infrastructure, which is almost always what actually causes the outages. So this was just another example of that. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about is every time, I, I know this is true, but every time I notice it, and it's especially true in this case, I still think it's absolutely crazy that we are burning oil for electricity in the United States today. And, and it's a significant portion. I'm looking at the generation mix in ISO New England during that week, and oil represented like a third of all generation in the region. Does that seem wild to you? Um, it does if you look at generation mix on an annual basis. But um, if you just look during those times of years when it's really cold and gas supplies are short, um, it's not that atypical. And um, a lot of the plants that are burning the oil are actually their gas and oil plants. So they're they're just going to burn whatever is cheapest for the for the grid. So um, yes, and there yes, it seems a little wild, um, and there are reasons why the gas price gets so high in New England. A lot of different theories are out there on why that happens. Some some folks think there's not enough capacity. Um, others think it has to do with transactions or withholding. But for whatever the reason, um, gas prices tend to get high as the supply gets constrained in the Northeast. And so we have to resort to burning oil as a substitute because it actually becomes cheaper. Which is sort of exactly what happened in the first week of January in ISO New England. And um, 
as a result in part of that nuclear plant shutting down. So that, that single plant, that Pilgrim plant goes offline, you know, sort of immediately. And I'm looking at the generation mix and the next day, while the Pilgrim plant was still offline, um, oil's portion of all the generation and in the region jumped from 30% to 34%, which is about the same as the reduction that we saw in nuclear. So I guess the question that I have is, you know, I think people who are a little bit skeptical of um, how easy we sometimes make this power transition sound might say, look, you have a situation where the nuclear plant went down. It's a cold snap. So we have extra, you know, more uh, load than we typically do. Gas prices spiked, as you said, and what do we need to fill the gap? oil, which is, you know, both generally considered to be expensive to generate electricity and uh, dirty by, you know, many standards, not least of which greenhouse gas standards. So what's your view of sort of where the grid in New England could go uh, in a situation like this, if say we wanted to shut down some of those oil generators? One thing that I think is really interesting about the connection between the question you're asking and the market design questions that um, underlie a lot of this is one of the things um, that didn't really get dispatched uh, during the bomb cyclone, as far as I know, was a lot of demand response. However, there is a fair amount of demand response capacity available in that region. But right now, it's not fully integrated into the energy and reserves markets in ISO New England. And instead, it's actually just called as an emergency resource. So it has to be administratively called if there's an emergency where there's a shortage in capacity. But if you look at the um, situation from last week with so much oil generation, I do think it was a bit crazy from a pollution perspective to have that high of a share of oil on the grid. And if demand response was better integrated into the grid operations and the real markets in that region, then we might have seen less oil come online when that big nuclear plant went down. Two thoughts on that also. Um, I think it's important to note that um, one of the largest sources of power that made up that nuclear unit was actually imports from New York. So, um, you know, as we move to a system, uh, you know, that's that's more integrated and we want to get rid of these, these older units, uh, it points to the value of having a highly interconnected system um, because you can rely on, um, you know, sources and surplus capacity in other regions. What about renewables? Um, you know, I thought one of the things that I saw you mention is that wind was actually sort of overperforming um, during this cold snap relative to what the forecasts had been. But I think that is a contrast to solar, which during that same period happened to be generally underperforming a little bit. How do you think about the role that renewables play uh, when you have this increased load all of a sudden and potentially decreased generation from nuclear simultaneously? Well, it's, it's tough. So um, when you're dealing with a, some kind of contingency event, um, you need to have some source of flexible capacity around. And Sonia alluded to that the fact that that could be demand response. Um, it could be some kind of battery storage. It might be more conventional, fast ramping plants. Um, but as far as renewables go, if they're being fully dispatched, which they usually are, then you're you know, today we're not paying them to hold back uh, power so that we have reserves. We could do that. Um, we could pay renewables if it were 
cost effective for them to hold back supply and, and make them available during events as reserves, but we don't do that today. That might be something in the future um, as we move to a system that has higher shares of renewables that we need to, to rethink. Um, but in today's markets, particularly those that are that are already oversupplied, uh, like in PJM and, and in the Northeast, we don't we don't do that. You know, I think it is really interesting that wind seems to oversupply compared to forecasts in uh, storm events. But if you think about it, it's pretty logical because oftentimes these storm events are pretty windy. So, um, you know, as the share of wind on the grid grows, um, I think we'll see pretty, um, you know, consistent performance from wind during more extreme weather events that include wind. I think that's right, though. I guess the counter example that I've heard mentioned before um, is I think it actually was the polar vortex, which is where during the storm wind overperformed. But after the storm, the cold temperatures remained. So load remained high, but wind generation decreased substantially. So you can get through sort of a portion of a weather event like this. Um, relying on or at least hoping for some extra generation from wind, but you can't necessarily ride through the whole thing that way. So, Sonia, what does this tell us broadly about what markets need to be more flexible and more resilient? Because uh, clearly there are benefits and drawbacks to every kind of generation technology. And this also tells us what we've long known, which is that uh, you know most of the outages and disruptions to the grid come on the transmission and distribution system. You also pointed to the fact that you know the market hadn't properly integrated demand response, which could have been used as a resource to perhaps cut oil-fired generation. So there's a lot of stuff swirling around in here. What are some lessons that you're taking away from this very recent uh, issue in the northeastern grid during the bomb cyclone? Sure, yeah. So... One thing to sort of keep in mind here is when we're talking about um, power systems and power markets, it's a part of the economy that's probably likely to remain highly regulated. So what does that mean? I think um, being proactive about thinking about the full mix of resources that we have on the grid today and what the price changes are, are that are happening in the market. Um, and then proactively planning for a system that is going to be able to meet outcomes that um, we know we want the system to meet um, will be really important moving forward. Um, you know, today, market operators uh, make a ton of decisions about how to run the market that are often based on experience and logic and kind of what has worked in the past. Um, but because we are in this period of transformation of the system at its core, um, we have all of these new low-cost technologies and capabilities that are available, um, and all of those systems uh, that grid operators and market operators have used in the past to, to run the system need to evolve. So, you know, for example, let me just get specific for a second. Um, grid operators have always needed some flexibility because you see demand rising and falling throughout the year and throughout the day, throughout the hour even. Um, and in aggregate, over many different small and often uncorrelated, at least at some level, demand uh, across a system, you have a smoothed out profile. And the, tr the same can be true for more variable supply 
um, having at least some uncorrelated supply and aggregating that over many sources um, can give you a pretty smooth and predictable profile. Basically, um, we can think more holistically about how to um, dispatch that supply and demand more in concert to come at a more dynamically managed grid. And that requires um, changes to the way that market operators and grid operators have done things, um, which have more to do with, you know, faster operations, faster decision making and payments, um, updating some of the operations and some of the controls, um, and then beginning to expose the value of certain kinds of flexibility and begin to pay for those things in a way that allows all technologies to compete to provide them. So those are some specifics on how things might change as we move forward into this new world. Hmm. How much of that do you think is a is a technology challenge? I mean, I think in some ways what you just described, the need for grid operators to be able to react more quickly um, and utilize these new resources, it, it sounds sort of similar to me to the way we talked about the way that utilities needed better visibility into customer load. Uh, you know, 10 years ago before the widespread introduction of smart meters. And at that time, there was a regulatory challenge. There was a market design challenge, but there was also a challenge of just, you know, they were doing monthly drive-by meter readings as opposed to actually having real-time visibility and communications with uh, the customer premises. Is it a similar situation? Do grid operators have the, the technology that they need in place to make these changes and they just haven't done it yet? Or do we actually need to implement you know, a smart grid for ISOs kind of thing. Yeah, Shale, I think that's a spot on observation in terms of the comparison, because um, there will be um, updates needed to kind of the software and the way that we actually run the grid. Um, it's really complicated, <laughs> these um, dispatch functions. Um, but there was actually a really interesting National Academy study that was released, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, that looked at how do we bring um, system optimization better to grid operations uh, and taking lessons from software development and applying them to grid dispatch. Um, and that, I think, provides some insight into where we might want to go in the future as far as bringing in better abilities to um, use modern software to dispatch the grid. Um, so yes, I think that we need some advances there. Um, and that is an area of technology that could be improved. But on the other side, um, as far as kind of more hardware uh, is considered, I think we have a lot of the technologies that we need. And they are, there are many of them coming down in cost very quickly. And it comes down to an institutional change and market design change that is needed in order to better access those low-cost resources. The Interchange is brought to you by FiveWorks. Times, they are a changing for utilities. In this digital age, the world expects more. And in the utility space, that means beyond meter data. Not only are you being asked to better engage and service your customers, but to anticipate their changing expectations and preferences. So what does it mean to truly know your customers? And can you leverage your data and the rising standards for customer engagement to benefit your business? 
With FiveWorks, absolutely you can. FiveWorks personalizes communication and drives customer action at scale through behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning, enabling you to deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. Go to fiveworks.com slash the interchange for more. That's fiveworks with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange, or follow the link on the podcast page to begin engaging the customer of one. So I want to bring this back around and, and just apply it, the lessons learned to the rejection of Rick Perry's Noper. Um, first, I want to just understand what FERC actually said when they rejected the Noper, and then going forward, whether or not they're going to integrate some of these concepts that you just outlined, Sonia. So they're going to ask grid operators, what are your resiliency needs? And I suspect that we'll get a continued evolution of the definition of what resiliency actually means. So I kind of want to start with the, f- the, the premise of rejection first, and then Talk about our expectations within the federal uh, energy regulatory world on on whether these concepts are going to start to get pieced together even more over the coming years. So maybe, Robbie, we'll start with you. What was the the legal argument behind this rejection? Sure. Um, So FERC cited uh, a couple of reasons why they had to reject the NOPR. Um, The first is that, you know, any... Any proposal from DOE or from the RTOs has to demonstrate that the existing tariffs uh, at those market operators are unjust, unreasonable, unduly discriminatory, or preferential. And FERC uh, did not find that the record put together through all the comments demonstrated that any of the existing tariffs uh, meet that standard. Um, or in other words, they just didn't find that the grid is a threat and that there's, a, there's an immediate need to deal with any threat to resilience. Uh, the second issue is that any proposed remedy, particularly under this kind of obscure portion of the Federal Power Act that uh, the Department of Energy used, um, has to be shown to be just, reasonable, and not unduly discriminatory or preferential. In FERC, found that the um, proposed remedy, which was to make out-of-market payments to a select group of generators, um, which didn't really appear to have been picked based on any real standard, um, they found that to be uh, discriminatory. And so FERC took issue with both the underlying premise of the DOE NOPR, uh, as well as the proposed solution. So it was a pretty resounding no uh, from the commissioners, it was a you know unanimous decision um, striking down the the Noper. So basically they did their job. Yeah, they did their job. <laughs> I did have one question about that. So people have looked, talked a lot about the unanimous decision and um, the commissioner Chatterjee in particular was the one who was sort of seemed to be as he, when he was acting chairman um, pushing the Noper and even asking for sort of a temporary reprieve for coal and nuclear plants in the meantime, while anything got implemented. And then the final decision comes down and Chatterjee sides with everybody else against the Noper. And, and it's hard for me to imagine that he wasn't just sort of going with the winds. He knew he was going to lose and, and went alongside with it, but he did then end up taking some heat from the side that was in favor of the Noper uh, as a result of that, and and in some ways seems to be sort of reveling in the fact that now he is gaining a reputation as more of a centrist than he seemed to be ahead of time. 
I don't know if you have any visibility into this, but do you have any sense of why he ended up coming down in opposition when it was the, the signals ahead of time were so clearly that he was in favor? Well, I think it's it's like you point out that he it became clear that he there there was no utility in dissenting from the opinion because he was clearly not going to sway the majority of the commissioners and better to have a unified front um, as for kind of kicks off its new session. Uh, his his um, concurrence did include quite a bit of language on what he would have preferred, uh, which I which I thought was pretty interesting. But uh, I think it was just a, a smart decision that better to to be with the majority than than to try and stick this one out when it was clearly not gonna gonna go in his favor. So I think it was a, a smart decision. Right. So that brings us to this bigger question. Commissioner said, okay, well, let's go back out and and ask uh, RTOs and ISOs what whether their resiliency needs are changing. And they're reframing the question that Rick Perry basically proposed. Um, the question, Sonia, I guess, is how is this going to play out? How is this question different? And what do we suspect the answer may be? Sure. So, um <laughs> Well, first of all, I'd like to commend the current commissioners for, for asking the questions about resilience um, first before kind of deciding on a measure to uh, fix them. Um, so I think that's uh, a smart way to go about it. Um, they did issue some very specific questions, um, and they posed them to the RTOs and ISOs primarily, although I believe anyone can comment on the questions. Um, but one of them is what is resilience and how is it measured and how is it different from reliability? Now, I think that's really um, exactly a great question. Um, and I guess uh, that's precisely where we would have started if we um, wanted to think about how to address this question, because one kind of topic that we have been raising is that a lot of these resilience discussions are very close to reliability discussions. And NERC already tracks something like 60 metrics around reliability that overlap considerably with resilience. Um, you know, of course, because of climate change, we are going to see more and more um, extreme weather events, and we've already seen a lot this past season. And so there's a lot of focus on resilience. Um, and for good reason. Uh, I guess the, uh, the question that we also want to come back to is how much resilience or reliability do we want to pay for? Because you know, there's lots of different ways to pay for this. You can pay for um, shoring up the transmission and distribution system ahead of time. Um, and you can also pay for um, a transition of the energy system to, to a system that emits less uh, CO2, which will uh, contribute to a reduction in um, the amount of extreme weather events. And, and all of these things have different costs. Um, and then, of course, the highest cost is trying to clean up the mess afterwards. So I think to go back, I think that this is a really good question to start out the conversation with. Um, I wish that there would be more agreement around which metrics quantitatively will represent resilience um, and a better kind of understanding of how much people want to pay to build in these attributes ahead of time. Um, 
And then I think that based on clear metrics, um, prioritizing the uh, approaches and solutions within the different sectors um, for meeting those metrics will be an important step. And then um, developing services and market products that will be defined in a technology neutral way to be able to procure those attributes. Can we just do a service to everybody for a moment that, uh, though it is slightly wonky, I think is important, which is just defining resilience and reliability and explaining the difference between those two. Because, you know, I think a lot of us, myself included, are sometimes guilty of using them interchangeably. And I know they're not the same thing. And they mean something different in the context of um, what FERC is asking from the ISOs in addition to what all these market design solutions should be. So what is resilience? What is reliability? And how are they different? Well, I think that's the key question. Um, and actually, I think it's not just you or us or anyone out there. It has not been clearly defined what resilience means in the context of um, especially the um, notice of proposed rulemaking that uh, Secretary Perry put forward. It was not clear at all uh, what he was specifically referring to, especially not quantitatively, um, when he talked about resilience versus reliability. Um, and I think that that is actually still a very open question. Is NERC actually already tracking the outcomes that we want for a resilient system? Um, or are there new things besides all of the metrics that NARC is already tracking um, that we want to make sure we plan for? And then secondly, are FERC and NERC actually the right agencies to be overseeing resilience? So, you know, one definition of the difference that some people have put forward is that resilience focuses on um, the impacts to customers uh, over time um, of extreme events. NERC already tracks and regulates um, customer outages. Uh, so that, you know, SADI and SAFI are very well established metrics for um, which is how often the interruptions are happening for customers and how long those interruptions last. Those are those are highly monitored and regulated um, already. But if there's something broader about the impacts that we want to get at with resilience, then um, that may have more to do with making sure that emergency crews are available um, to be able to come into an area and get things repaired quickly. It may have to do with creating um, microgrids for um, really uh, critical loads like uh, fire stations and hospitals and that sort of thing. Um, but that may or may not be the right realm for NERC and FERC to oversee. Um, instead, that seems to me more like a state issue. I think what you're pointing out is that this is so incredibly messy, messy when it comes to actual market design and policymaking and messy when it just comes to semantics. And I'll throw another word into the mix that I think has become really important, uh, flexibility. How do you value flexibility and can you use flexibility to make a more resilient grid? And, um, you know, flexibility can mean many different things. Robbie, I'll turn it over to you because, you know, y'all have been thinking a lot about what flexibility actually means. What do you think flexibility means today and what should it mean? 
Yeah, that's thanks, Stephen. That's a good good question. Um, so I think you're right. Flexibility means a lot of different things, and the way we've interpreted flexibility in the past is is different from how we're going to interpret flexibility and how flexible the grid needs to become in the future. Um, so we have kind of a, a hierarchy of how we think about flexibility. So we know that grid managers have to manage kind of the predictable variations in supply. So um, whether that's in the future with, with a lot of solar, when those plants go offline, or whether it's the uh, taking a nuclear plant offline to be refueled, uh, we know that we need to have sufficient resources to fill in when those predictable events happen. But we also need to have sufficient resources to manage the unpredictable events when a nuclear plant trips offline or when the sun goes away, it's behind clouds or the wind stops blowing. Um, grid operators need a way to manage those, those more unpredictable variations in supply. Um, we also have, and those, those are kind of two developments on the bulk electricity system. Now, we also have things happening on the distribution system, which we've been alluding to somewhat. So we have these, I'm going to call them invisible distributed resources, but they're invisible because grid operators don't really have insight into all of the different resources on the distribution system, where they are, how they're going to generate, and so on. And so at, a, at the transmission level for grid operators, they're having to manage around a set of resources that they can't really see. And the last little bit um, ties into something we, we talked about earlier, but it's the potential to harness flexible load. So not only do we have these distributed resources generating on their own, but increasingly we have flexible load on the demand side that grid operators can increasingly call on and dispatch as needed. And so these aren't all new to grid operators, but the, the role that they play on the grid is evolving and we need to ensure that we have the sufficient resources, as well as the sufficient market products and procedures that we can manage all of these um, changing uh, dynamics on the grid. So just to try to make it even more tangible for people, would I be right to say that, so let's just take, so, you know, a, a California spring day, which is the classic duck curve day. So there's this evening ramp when the sun is setting, um, everybody gets home, they turn on their lights, they run their dishwashers and peak occurs in the evening. And this, this basically three hour upward ramp from the middle of the day into that evening peak keeps getting larger and larger and larger. So the need to sort of deal with that upward ramp, that's one form of flexibility. But then there's another form of flexibility that it could be required on the same day, which could be what if in the middle of that day, all of a sudden there's, you know, a bunch of cloud cover and the solar suddenly stops generating. Um, so that would be a shorter need. It could be, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes instead of three hours, but it's another version of the same challenge, which is making sure that you have sufficiently flexible resources on the grid. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the thing is that those two different types of flexibility, um, they might come from different resources. Batteries are very good at discharging very quickly and helping to manage more of the unpredictable variations in supply. But if you want batteries to provide a three-hour ramp, well, it's not clear that they're necessarily going to be the best technology to do that. Um, and so we have to make sure that as these dynamics change on the grid, that we have the right signals in place to expose the value of the service that we need and to ensure that there's enough of those resources uh, to supply them. I mean, another example is that, as you pointed out, that ramp 
when the sun goes down is growing. Now, planning for uh, generation to come offline is not something new, but the rate at which uh, that generation is coming offline and having to be replaced, that is fairly new. Um, and so we're seeing Kaiso thinking through how they're going to they're gonna manage that as, as that trend continues to grow in the future. So this brings us to a much broader conversation about how prepared regulators are and grid operators are. And it's, you know, it's uh, dependent, I think, on how far ahead in adoption certain states are or wholesale markets are. So it's, you know, very geographically dependent. Um, Sonia, like, think about over the last five years, going back to your initial response, wind and solar and again, storage are becoming the lowest cost resources. We're in a very different world today. Are regulators and grid operators, do they have, are they getting better insight into these changes or are they still kind of driving blind? Yeah. So um, I think you're right on point about the wide variability um, of different um, policymakers in different regions. Um, So some, I think, are um, integrating more and more of the um, most recent cost numbers for these new technologies and, and, and building them into planning. But I would say, on the whole, there's still quite a long way to go on that. Um, one concrete example um, is right here in California. Um, there was a proposal for a new natural gas plant um, that was moving forward pretty quickly based on some old information about the costs of solar plus storage and the costs of demand response as alternatives. Um, first of all, they didn't uh, do an adequate uh, comparison to begin with. And then secondly, they were using cost data that was quite out of date. Um, but uh, thankfully, in this particular case, there was some analysis put forward that used more up-to-date numbers and found that the gas plant might not even be the cheapest option here, um, not to mention the fact that uh, building it would not help California meet its greenhouse gas targets, which are a law here. So um, in October of this past year, actually, the Utilities Commission made a decision not to move forward with the plant. um, And then the developer of the plant soon after pulled the plug. Um, So I think you know, this is just an example uh, of the kind of um, comparisons on costs and um, reliability that uh, will happen more and more as the new cost numbers become more apparent to uh, to planners and market operators around the U.S. I think Puente is a good example. I think it'll be interesting to see if it happens elsewhere. Um, I mean, and I guess that relates to a question that I have for you, Sonia, which is, it's easy to point to California because California is um, generally so far ahead in a lot of this stuff. California, you know, continues to toy with the idea of a 100% renewable energy standard. It's further along than any other mainland region uh, in terms of I think these policies and market design principles and things like that. Setting aside California, is there anywhere else that you would point to as an exemplar of making the transition well from a market design standpoint? Uh, Sure. Well, in New Orleans, there's a healthy conversation going on right now that is quite similar to the Puente discussion. Um, 
where there is a proposal for a natural gas plant, again, um, and uh, it's to meet some local reliability needs in New Orleans. Um, and uh, it, it unfortunately um, would be at risk um, during an extreme weather event um, so, sort of similar to what happened during Katrina of, um, you know, becoming inundated and, and unable to provide um, the energy services that it's intended to provide. So um, there's a good conversation happening there about um, what a portfolio of clean energy resources could be that would provide the same services as the gas plant, but hopefully be more resilient during extreme weather events. Um, similar conversations in Michigan, uh, primarily focused around expanding transmission capacity to large scale hydro that's available in Canada um, as an alternative to building a new natural gas plant. So I think there's a lot of um, discussion happening in other parts of the country. I think the Puente decision was perhaps one of the first um, real decisions moving in this direction, but it's definitely not um, an isolated event in terms of updating analysis to better take into account the changing cost of new clean energy technologies. So I, I feel like I have to give a shameless plug here for uh, a paper that we recently published in Energy Innovation that is kind of directly looking at the types of flexibility needed uh, in markets and examples from all over the country of where progressive market design is already attempting to procure those services. So um, to your point on which, you know, which areas in terms of market design are forward looking, uh, this document is is filled with a lot of examples of those. But I think to point to a couple of examples, um, down in Texas, ERCOT, which is the grid operator down there, um, they're pretty far along this curve. They have a pretty high penetration of renewables, uh, especially a lot of wind, and they have a lot of solar in the queue. Um, they've already started looking into, for example, how do they reform their ancillary services products to make sure that the system is is reliable and resilient in a future that has a, a high share of renewables. And they actually proposed a pretty progressive platform a couple of years ago. Um, it ultimately didn't get approved by stakeholders, but um, it's really great to see that they're thinking through this. And a lot of other folks are looking to ERCOT um, for information on kind of how ancillary services might evolve. Um, we already talked about KISO, uh, but PJM actually has been pretty progressive on battery storage, uh, at least until recently. And so they have served as a platform uh, or an example for other folks looking at how to integrate uh, battery storage into the ancillary services markets as well. So I just wanted to point out that we have um, compiled a lot of this information and it points to kind of the best case studies and examples from around the U.S. Uh, and different regions. I think PJM is a is an interesting example right now because they're also um, put out recently this new price formation proposal, which price formation, I think, along with flexibility is going to be a term we hear a lot for the next few years in this little world that we live in. But their new price formation proposal in PJM is has basically two components to it. Component one would benefit baseload resources um, and allow them to set price where they can't currently. But then uh, portion number two is basically their desire to introduce a new product that would incentivize flexibility. So they're kind of trying to do both, it seems to me. I, I think so. I think that the without <laughs> getting too wonky, uh, the price formation proposal that they've 
put forward actually requires uh, paying for flexibility because of the way it's designed. Um, but I think you're right that they and other market operators, even ISO New England has a quote unquote price formation proposal that's, that's a little more focused on flexibility um, that they're considering now. And so we're definitely seeing grid operators in the US and abroad uh, start to more seriously look at how uh, they're going to start valuing, you know, flexibility and all of the different things that means on the system. But I would say, too, that um, I think that there's a big risk of um, the price formation wording uh, being used to describe many different um, agendas. And uh, I think that there has been quite a focus on um trying to uh, get more money to generators um, that uh, are struggling economically in these markets um, under the guise of price formation. So I think it's, you know, as as the clean energy community watches these price formation proposals, don't get put off by the jargon and dig in and try to understand um, with the help of the folks at Green Tech Media, uh, probably um, really what these proposals mean for clean energy and where the money is going to ultimately land. Um, because I think this will be really an important um thing to get right, because we have an opportunity to use price formation to actually expose the value of flexibility, but we have a big risk that it uh, is kind of taken over by those that are struggling in the market and looking to get more revenue. So Secretary Perry's proposed rule was one of the biggest stories in this realm in 2017, moving into 2018. And uh, that's why we focused on it so much. But let's just uh, ta- uncover some other stories that you think are interesting in 2017 and moving into 2018 that we should be paying attention to. Sonia, what uh, was the most compelling market development last year uh, that we should be following into this year? Sure. Um, so I would say emphatically the flip in the cost dynamics in the power sector. This is so profound. It's really almost hard to overstate how important of a shift this is, because I think it will drive a lot of other decision making in the power sector um, as we move forward. So we saw last year, and I referenced this a bit earlier, but um, the cost all in for new wind power plants um, starting to become lower than just the cost of continuing to operate certain coal plants. And that is, you know, not it's not just a cost comparison, new versus new. This is new versus existing. So there you have a real disruption happening where you have new resources coming in below the cost of continuing to operate the grid. And then state regulators who are overseeing these generation mixes have to ask themselves, what is the best course of action for customers? We want them to have least cost, uh, reliable, clean power generation. And as we're seeing these dynamics flip, um, it really is going to be facing folks uh, square on on how we responsibly manage the retirement of more of these coal plants and replace them with clean energy. So I think, you know, we saw a huge number of coal plant retirement announcements last year, um, not just in kind of the states that you would expect, but many different states um, 
there was a filing that was actually, I particularly liked seeing this one, um, a small uh, Missouri utility uh, had hired Charles Rivers Associates to submit a filing on their behalf uh, showing that the uh, that a coal plant in their region was um, more expensive than replacing that generation with other resources. Um, and when you're starting to see that organically coming from the utilities themselves, I think um, we've really reached a, a critical point. Yeah, Shale, two of my favorite charts of the year were, your, were some of your charts outlining the integrated resource plans of utilities around the country, both for solar and storage. And it tells that story. It shows just how many gigawatts and gigawatts of solar and storage are going to be potentially procured outside of any mandate. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I think is interesting is you have to think in, two, in terms of two time horizons in the electricity sector. One is like the cost dynamics are shifting extraordinarily quickly, as you just mentioned, Sonia. And then on the other hand, it just takes a while for this stuff to actually play through in the market. So, you know, utility integrated resource plans are a perfect example of that, where the cost dynamics have basically just flipped um, in a lot of these cases over the past 18 months or so. And what that means is not that all of these existing generators are going to retire tomorrow and be replaced by renewables and energy storage. But what it means instead is that in the next wave of utility long-term planning cycles, they're going to totally change what generation mix they expect to see over the next decade or so. And you could just point to dozens of examples of that happening right now. So it's a wave, but you have to kind of look deep within these utility IRPs to find the wave because it doesn't show up right away in terms of new capacity or new generation. Robbie, how about you? What story were you tracking closest in 2017 into this year? Um, well, I think it's uh, it's building off of that a little, but it's it's the price dynamics in markets and the way in which falling gas prices uh, combined with um, combined with penetration of renewables and growing demand side participation and, and relatively flat demand are kind of fundamentally changing the way we think about markets and. Some of what we saw in 2017 uh, was a response to that, and I don't think that's going to stop. I think we've touched on it here with the price formation proposals. There are capacity market reforms being pushed through as well in ISO New England and PJM, uh, and I think that's going to continue. And the response to the, those proposals from RTOs uh, is going to have a pretty big impact on how the markets evolve over time. Are we going to move to a system that sets us up for the future and and gets those uh, products and services that we want that will make the grid nimble? Or are we going to find ourselves in a position where we've put forward a lot of policies that try to preserve the status quo? Um, I think that, that really jumped to the forefront this year. And I think we should expect to continue seeing development in that area in the coming year. Robbie Orvis is the Policy Design Projects Manager at Energy Innovation. Robbie, thanks so much. Thank you. Sonia Agarwal is the Vice President of Energy Innovation. Sonia, thank you. Thank you very much. It was a fun conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. And Shale, thanks to you as always. Likewise, Stephen. This is The Interchange. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Ask Amazon Alexa to play us. You can find us there. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, hugely important for helping us climb up the rankings there and find new listeners. Send a link to your colleagues 
and friends. If they're a grid geek like us, then I'm sure they'll love to listen to this episode and many others like it. So forward our episodes around and send us an email to podcast at greentechmedia.com if you want to hear stuff uh, from our guests and from us. Thanks very much for listening. With Shell Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Weekly Conversations on the Global Energy Transformation from Green Tech Media. Yeah.